Welcome to the Deaf Panel. To support the show and get access to the second weekly bonus episode, as well as the entire back catalog of bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I am here with my co-hosts, Artie Vierkant. Hello. And Abby Cardis. Hello. And the three of us are going to check in on the state of the U.S. COVID response, one month out from the end of the federal public health emergency declaration, which was ended by the Biden administration on May 11th of this year, exactly 1,200 days from the day it started. So we'll be talking about some changes to the CDC risk level maps, the so-called unwinding of Medicaid, where hundreds of thousands of eligible people have already been kicked off of their safety net health insurance over paperwork. And we'll check in on the slow drift towards the total privatization of the COVID response. You know, we'll be looking at specifically some examples of how that is materially playing out for people. But first, this episode comes out on Thursday, June 8th which means that tomorrow, Friday, June 9th, is the last day to submit a comment to CMS demanding that they include hospital onset COVID-19 in the hospital acquired condition reduction program. It's super easy to do. In the past, we've done projects like this on death panel, for example, in 2019, when we coordinated to flood a public comment period with letters from our listeners using this great template that Phil wrote to help fight against attempts to implement more aggressive work requirements in SNAP. So this is a process that's often opaque and not really participated in by regular people. But the point is that each of these comments that gets submitted has to be read and addressed by the CMS team before they can move forward with the regulation. So this is a sort of template that the People's CDC has set up using this system. Um, yeah, there's a link in the description. There's a link in the episode description. It's sort of running with this idea that we actually discussed on the show a couple of weeks ago, which was to propose using this existing program that Centers for Medicare and Medicaid uses to basically discipline hospitals through withholding payments if they don't control certain hospital-acquired infections and demanding that they add COVID to that list. So the People CDC is actually calling on people to comment on a rule where this is not what's being proposed. Right, like hijacking a existing federal comment period, which happen all the time. Yeah, totally. exactly. Yeah. And this is, this is you know, CMS is like not proposing to add hospital-acquired COVID to the hospital-acquired condition reduction program. You know, that was just like an idea that we floated here on the show. But like this comment period being about something totally else is now flooded with comments about doing this specifically. So it's a great way to kind of like amplify and reiterate demands and frankly, like kind of annoy the shit out of some of these administrators and yeah. give them something <laughs> to bring to their boss and be like, hey, I got a thousand comments about COVID in the CMS regulation comment period about something, something else. About yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, if you're listening to this and it's after the 9th of June, you're not out of luck because there are a bunch of other comment periods that are still open and will still be open for days. Yeah, exactly. So again, the link is in the description if you want to do this that, you know, walks you through what to know about what to submit to this thing on the Federal Register. Again, this one specifically is open uh, only until June 9th. That's this Friday uh, at midnight. So if you're listening to this, as many people do on the day that it's released, you know, you've got a full day until Friday night at midnight. If not, again, as B saying, there are plenty of other, you know, federal comment periods coming up. So 
this, I think, is, um, you know, the original conversation that we had here on the show was talking about how CMS is a really good agency to put pressure on specifically to try to create a sort of nationwide expectation that there are going to be mass mandates in healthcare settings, right? Mm -hmm. Um, CMS is kind of the agency to put pressure on for that. So I just want to be clear uh, a couple of things. One, again, you know, this one closes June 9th, Friday, June 9th at midnight. There are, as B is mentioning, other comment periods coming up that you can submit to in the future, especially if we're already kind of hijacking pre-existing mm-hmm. comment periods. Because again, by law, CMS has to read every submission. And while they can, you know, if there's like chain letter style copying uh, like from a template or whatever, they can kind of group submissions if people don't like write them in their own words necessarily. But um, by law, they're supposed to actually respond to any concerns to yeah. any yeah concerns shared during this comment period. And so at the very least, just from the amount of people submitting, we should get at least some form of response even or acknowledgement, um, or acknowledgement mm-hmm. right? Not saying that like this is going to uh, do it in itself. The other thing I would just say is, you know, just to be clear what we meant really when we originally brought up here on the show that CMS is a key agency to press to regulate mass mandates into healthcare settings is that, you know, in addition to all of this, this is just kind of one one avenue that we can explore. Um, you know, there's no deadline on direct action. There's no deadline on public pressure. There's no deadline on if this is your preferred pathway that you're comfortable with or most comfortable with. There's no deadline on, you know, making appeals to your federal, state or local representatives about mm-hmm. this, obviously. Right. So, you know, again, one of many um, a possible pathways. Of <laughs> yes, yes, one of a diversity of tactics, but something that we definitely encourage people to do if they're listening to this. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I also went ahead and I just added like the four next most recent comment periods after this one that expires on Friday that are happening in CMS to a Google Doc that's at bit.ly forward slash more CMS comments. So if you're listening to this after the ninth, that will also be in the episode description. description. So you can just go ahead and get started using that people CDC template for inspiration on a whole other law to start bothering people for. (laughs) So moving along, when the federal public health emergency ended on May 11th, the CDC switched off It's color-coded community-level system that we have Mm. been dragging on this show since it was introduced (laughs) in late February of 2022. So now the CDC says that they're going to keep tabs on COVID-19 by just, like, tracking hospitalizations in some areas. And it's similar to how they track other viruses like the flu. And it's supposed to replace the pastel community level system, that, which was like combining hospital data with some testing data. And now it's sort of shifting, just looking at things that are like those lagging indicators like hospitalizations and deaths. And all of our forward looking indicators have dropped off. Yeah, I think as far as, um, you know, talking about as we're going to be going through today, Um, sort of assessing the state of affairs a month on from the end of the public health emergency. I feel like this is a really big one that we haven't had a chance to address on the show yet. And I'm happy that we can take like kind of a moment to talk about this. And also too, I think in the same breath, like take a moment to talk about what's happening with um, people being kicked off of Medicaid, because I find it very interesting that obviously, you know, if you think about the whole way that the sort of Uh, sociological construction of the end of the pandemic has been sold. It's like step one, we have the tools, therefore the tools which like are 
presented by the Biden administration as like flowing like water or something, <laughs> which we'll, we'll talk about later about the reality <laughs> of that situation. Um, you know, the, the tools are what then suggest that then it's you know going to be fine for everybody. And thus, you know, we can do things like uh, like the, the Biden administration straight up sold the end of the public health emergency as though nothing was going to fundamentally change. Mm-hmm, right. As mm-hmm. though it would just end. It'd be fine. Things are still going to be free, like COVID care or whatever, under specific circumstances, you know, big old asterisk on that. Yeah, lie detector determined that <laughs> that was a lie. And then, <laughs> you know, one of the it, like this community level thing is very interesting because on one hand, it's like, OK, so despite this assertion that nothing will fundamentally change, we're taking the community level system, which we were already very critical of for not actually looking at testing and cases and transmission. Mm-hmm. And we're very critical of how it pivoted things to just looking basically at hospitalization with testing and cases as this modifier. But then the new to the extent that there is even a new system, which is kind of vague and unclear, but the new, you know, quote unquote system for sort of recommendations on COVID now completely doesn't look at testing, completely doesn't look at cases and is only focused on hospitalization. And the reasoning behind that is in part because when the public health emergency ended, the government then basically ceded its authority to require labs to report Mm COVID-19 testing data (laughs) to the federal government, which obviously, as we'll talk about later, testing and people being able to even find or get a test is itself uh, <laughs> practically yeah, disappeared fraught. by the sound of some of the stories that we've gotten. But mm-hmm. but I digress. It's it's you know so to to go back to that like um, the, the the process that I described happening here. It's like you know step one we have the tools. Step two, therefore we can end the public health emergency, which then basically takes away also our requirement for. <laughs> cases and reporting, which therefore means that even the bad community level system cannot function anymore. And therefore, (laughs) uh, how are we even supposed to know? Like, how is like, I mean, uh, that that's a rhetorical question. It's like, you know, (laughs) therefore, it's like, okay, because we have you know, we quote unquote have the tools and because we're basically just asserting it's fine, it's going to be fine. Therefore, we can also look away from any of the key metrics that we had before at all. I mean, you know, in in a lot of ways, this isn't new because we've been talking forever about how uh, testing and reporting of that information has gone away. But now, you know, we're in this like new situation, even where if you if you go to like the CDC website, for example, and like look at the deaths tracker it's like buried now they show a percentage change yep. they show a percentage from previous change. week no absolutely it's it's been really difficult to i think watch this second rollback and shift of the meaning of the risk that we've seen now um in two years because in a way if we think about this it's it's like the second step in moving the goalposts mm-hmm. away from thinking about like risk in terms of how much COVID is spreading around you in the community to risk is something that happens to people over there in the hospital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It's that's a very interesting way of putting it because I've been reading like, oh, you know, it used to be important for us to count this metaphor of like snowfall. Like it used to be important for us to count every snowflake. But now, you know, we can just see how much snow has fallen, but it's like the fuck we can, you know, like (laughs) I just, I don't, I mean that metaphor, it, I think it sounds like rather comforting, but 
And just it as snow make- melts, we will, you know, wash the data away before you can even <laughs> yeah. see yeah. it. <laughs> this is totally like no data, no problem. Like we're not yeah. doing anything like you're saying to track leading indicators of COVID transmission. I guess, what is it going to be now? Like proportion of hospitalizations, you know, uh, not to get into the whole with or for bullshit again, but like the proportion of hospitalizations for COVID, like that is now the main metric that's being tracked. But like, I mean, the CDC death tracker itself on its website, like the most concrete figure that it shows is the weekly percentage death amounts of COVID deaths versus deaths of all kinds. And that's obviously not even it's yeah. I mean, it's very much nothing to see here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, I guess like COVID deaths are in some ways still the most like reliable indicator because they are, I think, calculated from death certificates in the same way as they had been before. But that opens up all these like questions, like the whole infrastructure for even like certifying that someone, you know, is COVID positive or like was COVID positive at the time of death is kind of falling apart. And um, I mean, the CDC, that like that website, I was looking at it the other week and it's a total sleight of hand because it's like, yeah, the Mm -hmm. the percentage of COVID deaths and then like the percentage change week on week. And this is how you kind of, I mean, yeah, this is how you lie with numbers. Like this is how you cover up. It's how you get away with social murder. Yeah. Well, yeah, totally. Because it's like, oh, you know, the, the like COVID deaths, they're down, you know, such and such percent, you know, like week on week. And it's like, okay, but that, but what, you know, what, (laughs) what was a hundred percent a week ago? (laughs) Like how many, how many deaths was that? Like how many deaths is it this week? Like you can't, it's not, it's not easy to find. And, uh, that's bad. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just so frustrating because so much of the discussion around this and the way that each of these changes and, and shifts in the goalposts have been communicated is all about, well, it's about accuracy. Well, it's about what data we need, what data we can get, what data is most important. This is about science. This is about, you know, pure need and appropriateness like it's framed in these like Mm -hmm. terms that are just so trying so hard to cast the sort of spell of neutrality on these decisions saying that they're justified by some empirical (laughs) vibe of some fucking story (laughs) and the thing that's so fucking frustrating that no one and like will acknowledge and none of these people who like spend their time wasting air and word counts opining about the politicization of medicine and science being the undoing of like our society and the COVID response and trust in government and democracy, whatever the fuck they want, you know, like all of that shit, right? Like all of those people are all maintaining the fucking illusion that these changes are empirical and exist only in this empirical vacuum and that they do not affect the world in any way, shape, or form outside of just existing and justifying themselves by being scientifically appropriate. But the fact of the matter is, when this shit leaves that fucking imaginary vacuum and exists in real life, it is a communication of risk to the public. 
and you are communicating that the risk is now different and you are miscommunicating the risk. You are fucking covering it up and lying. And it doesn't matter if it's scientifically appropriate what it does in the public sphere, in society, out in the world. Its actual effect on the fucking world is that it communicates and undermines the understanding of actual risk yeah, of COVID <laughs> around people. And it absolutely is political. Well, All yeah. science yeah. is political. Duh. Because <laughs> bur- yeah, burying the actual death figures, you know, three links down a link tree where to advance to the next page to find it appropriately. Yeah. You have to know the correct terminology and then use a drop down mm-hmm. window to figure out like a, like the the number of change in like the cumulative like to basically do the math from like looking yeah, at you have the to cumulative do like percentage death math you have to do today fractions. from a week ago from the past week to figure that out because that's that's just science yeah like like, burying, yeah. burying yeah, things that is in a science web. it's fucking like no but here these like don't let these fuckers get away with pretending they're not just trying to make it minimize you know like come on like ugh. this is what this is what the <laughs> um this is what the whole like endemic epidemic discourse was preparing us to accept as like you know empirical and scientifically neutral and i've been thinking about that a lot because i'm like yeah no one i think i've I've even said this on the show before like endemic and epidemic are qualitative distinctions not quantitative ones like there's no sort of empirical threshold you know that applies absolutely universally in every context like separating an endemic disease from an epidemic disease it's all about the vibe and the empirical vibe as you said and like the point of this empirical vibe just i mean just like you said is to make covid into something that happens to other people vulnerable people that have to go to the hospital you know like the flu like you know i just think about like the discursive function of like or i don't know maybe not function but like the discursive character of like flu deaths in the u.s Mm -hmm. um and you know they really are treated like kind of a non-event um and that's exactly the maneuver that is is happening here with covid deaths and yeah it's um it sucks and uh i am gonna be annoying about it because i was right that this is what the whole against (laughs) it (laughs) yeah exactly this is what this is what the whole sort of like oh when do we know that covid is endemic and the answer is we know that it's endemic when the values of our society, like the rhetorical norms, the data infrastructure is all reoriented around COVID being invisible. And, yeah. you know, that's it. Like, that's 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 where we are. I think maybe to further mix or uh, muddle some metaphors in here, B earlier yes. mentioned that, you know, goalposts have been shifted and we've used goalpost shifting a lot, as a lot of people have, obviously, um, as sort of a metaphor for the situation for a long time. But I feel like it's actually kind of more appropriate to say it's um, it's not really so much that goalposts have been shifted as we have abandoned the field. The field has itself <laughs> become like this metaphysical non-space. And we're kind of living in town. and we're kind of living in that situation yeah exactly um maybe though um this is a good time before we get into some of the um stories that we've gotten submitted from listeners and others maybe now would be just a good time to really quickly touch on the other really big thing uh to look at from like a month out from the end of the public health emergency which is the so-called medicaid unwinding Mm -hmm. i think this is important just to check in on um this is as we've talked a lot about before the fact that just before the end of the public health emergency democrats um greenlit medicaid redeterminations to resume 
um, which had been paused during the emergency. And I think it's important to circle back on this because we're starting to see the first picture of what that looks like. And with data from only 12 states reporting so far, more than 600,000 people have already been kicked off Medicaid. Um, And I know what you might be thinking for a moment if you're a longtime listener, like 600,000. Okay, you know, that's maybe not as bad as I thought, like compared to the estimates of millions, as many as 15 or 20 million people who have been estimated to be at risk of losing Medicaid coverage because of this. Um, First of all, obviously, of course, as I just mentioned, this is only data from 12 states and it's just the beginning. Um, This is a process that's supposed to happen over the course of at least a year. Mm And, you know, when we started raising the alarm about this, I know that the long duration of this process wasn't necessarily a focus for a lot of people. Um, You know, I kept seeing stuff even from like writers on the left who I like, right? You know, people who, mind you, I'm not throwing any shade here, um, but saying stuff like Democrats kicked millions of people off Medicaid in a single weekend and like no one noticed or something. And it's like, okay, yeah, while the regulatory change did happen on a specific date, April 1st, which is when states were able to begin redeterminations, it's a slow rolling process. You know, it's going to be a disaster over at least, again, the time frame of a year. Um, so, you know, whatever, not to not to be too didactic, um, but I want to make sure that people, you know, don't see the headlines saying like 500 or 600,000 people have lost Medicaid so far and think like maybe it's not going to be as bad as we thought. This is like first and foremost, because five and five or six hundred thousand people being kicked off Medicaid is itself a fucking tragedy, but also because there's a lot like we can expect a lot more of the same. Um, but anyway, so of those 600,000 um, people who have lost their Medicaid already, according to an analysis from the Kaiser Family Foundation, first of all, 250,000 of those people were kicked off Medicaid in Florida alone. <sighs> My God. Um, Jesus. My blood pressure is going up this episode <laughs> recording. <laughs> that's a huge number um, compared to the other states reporting, you know, 72,000 in Arkansas. Again, these are all fucking tragedies. This is horrible, but 72,000 people uh, in Arkansas 53,000 in Indiana, 43,000 in Pennsylvania. And, you know, so each one of those is obviously huge and a a problem, but it just makes the Florida figure that much more remarkable, I think, um, for just the first month of the Medicaid unwinding. Um, And I think it's really important when you then look into the reason, the very predictable reason, um, mind you, that most of these people even lost their coverage in the first place. You know, was it because these people were found to be definitively no longer eligible for Medicaid? Were they found to, you know, no longer meet the means test for Medicaid coverage? No. Mm -hmm. Um, In Florida, for example, 82 percent, 82 percent of people kicked off of Medicaid um, so far were kicked off for, quote unquote, procedural reasons, which means to translate the jargon, they simply didn't fill out or return paperwork on time, which is basically exactly what we said was going to happen when we started talking Mm -hmm. about this process, because this is how Medicaid is designed to work. This is what the churn is. Like Mm -hmm. we put these onerous barriers, um, these like administrative burdens in place, basically, you know, states put these in place to control and keep costs down Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. them. Um, and to basically by basically keeping people off of the program by kicking people off of care you know there so for for these for 82 percent of that 250,000 figure in florida for 82 percent of those people there's no determination whether or not they do or do not qualify it's a determination based on the fact that 82 percent of these people didn't clear that first level of administrative burden did not recently you know submit some paperwork on time and were just kicked off of the program 
that figure also in some of the other states with, you know, tens of thousands of people kicked off of Medicaid, that figure is 89% in Indiana. Jesus fuck. And 89% also in West Virginia <sighs> and 88% in Arkansas. So, you know, again, this is more or less exactly what we've expected, what we were talking about before when we said really explicitly whether people still qualify for Medicaid or not is basically entirely beside the point mm-hmm. because many, if not most people will be kicked off because they didn't fill out the right form. And we also know, according to another Kaiser Family Foundation source, the survey that they put out about like what people even know about this Um how much this was even communicated to people before this process just exactly. started. We know that nearly half of Medicaid enrollees said to Kaiser Family Foundation in this poll that they have not previously been through a Medicaid renewal process, meaning because this has been ongoing for two years, there was a pause, right? A lot of people have never even known the regular onerous and burdensome nature of the fucking Medicaid redetermination process. We've like swept the rug out from like at at least half of these people, at least according to this survey. It's fucking brutal. I I also want us to just take a second to talk about some of the key findings from the same poll that Artie is talking about, which is um, a poll that Kaiser Family Foundation did called the Unwinding of Medicaid Continuous Enrollment um, that came out on May 24th. So they write, Quote, most Medicaid enrollees were not aware that states are now permitted to resume Mm -hmm. disenrolling people from the Medicaid program. Roughly two thirds, 65 percent of all Medicaid enrollees say they were not sure if states are allowed to remove people from Medicaid if they no longer meet the eligibility requirements or don't complete the renewal process, with an additional seven percent incorrectly saying that states will not be allowed to do this. Three in four adults aged 65 and older say they are unsure if states are allowed to remove people from Medicaid, and black adults are more likely than white adults to incorrectly state that states will not be allowed to do this. Just under three in 10, 28% overall are aware that states are now allowed to remove people from Medicaid. And you Please know, clap. <sighs> Great job, everybody. Great job, Democrats. This, I mean, this really reflects and shows a point that Marshall Steinbaum made in our patron episode on Monday, which is that he was talking about student debt relief and um, income driven repayment programs and said, you know, like the only people who access these programs are those who have the kind of institutional knowledge and expertise to know these things exist. And that part of what's going on in the debt ceiling deal is like an is shift from having these payment, the monthly student debt payments paused to basically putting like an administrative burden on getting your payments paused. And and what's going to happen is exactly what's we're seeing here in Medicaid, which is that like, you know, this is going to result in a material downstream harm that is going to intersectionally apply in a terrible subjective way. Mm -hmm. The poorer and the less educated that you are along racial lines. And this is really rationing. This is a form of rationing. We have to remember that you moved like if you have to move around and like, yeah, this is this is organized abandonment. This is divestment unevenly from very specific communities that are devalued already. This is structural and racial capitalism exercising the status quo back 
after, you know, a three-year pause on redeterminations, uh, a three-year change in a much more generous Medicaid program. You know, this is a hard message mm-hmm. that, like, mm-hmm. pandemic time is over. Like, you know, the the, che- the check's done. Like, the checking account's empty. Like, we're not going to help you anymore. Like, fuck off. Yeah. It's been, it's just interesting to watch this contrasting we've even I think called it this on the show before sort of the one-way ratchet towards like less and less Mm -hmm. um, investment in like you know less and less like resources for I don't know COVID tracking you know a bunch of COVID money is getting sucked back out of federal agencies as part of like the debt ceiling deal you know and that we're only ever moving in like the direction of like sort of normalization and less and less and less. And once you sort of take COVID protections away, like it ratchets in that one direction and they never come back. And then to compare that with this like brutal retrenchment that's happening in Medicaid, basically according to like a fairly arbitrary, like administrative deadline is, um, is very instructive, I think. Yeah. I think also just a thing to note to the, I mean, this survey that Kaiser Family Foundation put out. I think the f- the finding is obviously really damning against the entire process. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not for the reasons that liberals will say it's damning, though, <laughs> because I think you know the the big takeaway. I had and I have seen this from at least a couple of people. You know, the big takeaway being, as B was saying, sixty five percent of Medicaid enrollees saying they're not sure if states are doing redetermination or not, or are allowed to do it or not. Mm-hmm. With seven percent fully saying they're not able to like, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, you know, there, there's at least some people in the sort of like, uh, liberal comment sphere who have at least pointed it out and said like, Oh, this is a, it's a tragedy of communication or something that like we have, we haven't like appropriately made a big enough deal about this, which even, you know, could be reflected in. I saw someone claim it was like, a problem of literacy. Yeah. Oh I was God. just going to say that. I was yeah. like, I know I mean, for a fact right, someone uh, has, I guess I was being overly generous. Yeah. <laughs> I was, yeah, you're, no, you're totally right. I was being overly generous. Obviously, you know, liberals mostly are going to be blaming the people themselves for not knowing this. But the most generous read I've seen among liberals is that, you know, this is we need like a better PR apparatus for the state to say that they're fucking people mm-hmm. when I should when, you know, straight up. It's like, for, I mean, first of all, this shouldn't be a problem. Everyone should just be covered. Like, obviously, you know, we're here for all care for all people all the time. But at a base level, these figures, this survey itself, the, these results showing how people don't even know about what is happening mm-hmm. to them. To me, it's why the fuck should they know? Right. They shouldn't have to right. know any of this stuff. They shouldn't have to fucking follow the contours of congressional procedure to be able to live their fucking lives and get their medication. This is mm-hmm. vile, you know? And I, you know, I think this is, again, we've talked over and over again about this, like, just like so many other pandemic programs um, that have been shuttered down by the Biden administration, there's a real missed opportunity here to be like, oh, well, you know, now there's an expectation that the redetermination process can't be this onerous. Maybe mm-hmm. if you qualify, you're just on it. We can, you know, federal government has the money. We can just pick up that bill, whatever. Let's do it. You know, let's make uh, let's make that happen. And that isn't even floated as a political possibility. That's not mm-hmm. even, you know, that's 
that's just completely foreclosed on. Instead, the entire driving strategy of the Democrats is just like, nah, we got to get back to normal. Oh, yeah. We have mm-hmm. to seek compromise. And Look this at is us your this problem fucking now. debt ceiling deal that we just <laughs> did. Don't you just love the don't you just love us for imposing work requirements arbitrarily on like a weird section of people that didn't previously have to have work requirements under snap? Isn't that fucking cool? Aren't we so good at compromise? My God, we're the best at governing, right? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. We're so good because we've pissed off the right and the left equally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is honestly one of, this is such a good example of what Phil so brilliantly said all those years ago now on one of our first episodes discussing the sociological production of the end of the pandemic, you know, is that the stuff is not necessarily coherent, right? But it mm-hmm. sure is fucking brutal. And Phil's you know, framework, which is like, it's not conspiracy, it's hegemony, really kind of reflects the way that all of these shifts that we've been discussing, you know, they are sinister material, they're going to have sinister materials, social, political impacts, right? But they're not necessarily part of this, like, coherent strategy, per se. It's more that it's like, these are all own goals, they stem Mm -hmm. from, like, the demands of capital. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, again, another great philism, which is like the executive of the American state is the manager of capitalism. And this is all really part of, I think, an attempt to put an end cap on the kinds of political possibilities that became part of a public discussion as part of the pandemic. You know, the idea that you could just pause student debt payments and it would be fine for three years. The the, the mm-hmm. fact that you could just double F map, you know, really fund Medicaid. Like you can do that, right? Like it is possible and it works, right? And the longer you allow that to stand, right, the harder it becomes to justify taking it away. And that's like one of the number one truisms and maxims that you always hear politicians talk about when they talk about, you know, needing to make sure when they're standing up programs, they can pay for them because, you know, if people get attached to it, then, you know, we're going to be under fire if we take it away. So we have to make sure it's like fiscally sound so we don't get penalized for, you know, later. And I I think that's really a huge part of what drives the the forced ending of the pandemic more so than any one vibe or emotion. It's like this is what capital demands. Well, I think this is a good time for us to turn to um, some of these stories that we've solicited from people if everyone's good with that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we've been talking about, you know, it's been about a month since the end of the public health emergency. And I, I kind of mentioned this before, but just as a reminder, obviously, you know, one of the reasoning, like part some of the reasoning behind uh, ramping down pandemic prevention over the last several years has been this, this idea that we have the tools, right? There's like a she's jaw saying like, we can prevent nearly every COVID death. Isn't that a remarkable fact, et cetera. There's, you know, countless, um, statements from administration <laughs> officials saying stuff like this, right? We have the um, tools, therefore we don't really need the tools anymore if you think right. about it. God. Your mask is um, like an umbrella. But, <laughs> but you know, basically, so to, to hear the Biden administration say it, you know, it's practically like COVID 
treatments, therapeutics, vaccines, et cetera, uh, testing is practically flowing like fucking water, right? If you need treatment, you'll get it. If you need a test, you'll get it. Your insurance will pay for it. Um, if you're uninsured, then, you know, as we talked about in a recent episode, then, uh, big asterisk, you know, uh, vaccines are free until like vaccines are free while supplies last, you know, when we run out of the stockpile, we run out and then, you know, I mean, as we literally talked about in an episode just recently in early May, which I think was called, um, no one will be left behind. It's a quote from Ashish Jha, um, that, you know, they're going to rely on the good faith and w- goodwill of um, Pfizer and Moderna to do patient assistance programs, Fucking which, um, yeah, see, see our review of that plan for what we think about that. But <laughs> it's like health, um, health services research brain is like, oh, yeah, like American healthcare is like this Newtonian field, you know, with like perfectly smooth <laughs> objects and like no friction and, you know, all, just people accessing accessing affordable health care like left and fucking right like <laughs> totally <laughs> um but but right but that's the thing so there's this imaginary of what's supposed to be there for people mm-hmm. right and the biden administration has been presenting that very straightforwardly <laughs> they've been very clear about it this like you know again they're like bountiful they and very to easy believe, to get and yeah. free for everybody they want to believe this and i think there's a lot of assumptions um being made in the media that that's true frankly like a lot of there's you know every once in a while you'll see something in a mainstream media outlet that is saying like there are going to be like new headaches for people who are uninsured or underinsured or whatever in the in the sort of like post public health emergency reality but a lot of the time it's either unaddressed completely to be totally frank or it's Mm -hmm. just kind of hand waved away and so we thought you know uh what's actually happening you mm-hmm. know what like i don't see anyone following up on this like thankfully like i'm happy that there's you know organizations like kaiser family foundation for example looking into uh and tracking data that states are reporting on the unwinding um or the you know the um, medicaid uh disenrollment on people getting kicked off of medicaid but then a lot of the reporting that happens about that is literally just like you know, citing and, you know, regurgitating what the reporting that Kaiser is doing, right. Mm-hmm. And the data collection Kaiser is doing. And that's great that that's spreading around, but like who the fuck is tracking whether people can still get vaccines or not mm-hmm. or get a test or not. And it's very clear just from looking at social media, there's a lot of problems mm-hmm. happening with uh quote unquote access to this stuff, access to the tools, but you never see, you never see something about like, how is this actually happening for people? So this is all kind of a long preamble. So basically we decided, fuck it. Um, If media (laughs) organizations aren't going to be really looking at what new administrative burdens people are facing just to get quote unquote, the tools, then we should be the ones to do that at least, or start that process. Um, You know, honestly, what made us want to do this was my own experiences with my Medicare Part D denial and hearing from people who actually knew what they were talking about and were experts on this kind of denial saying, you know, this thing happens way more often and you just don't hear about it. And so we wanted to sort of take that and apply it to the COVID situation because we knew this was what was going on here, too. So we asked and you answered. Uh, yes, as you, thank as you they listeners say. for responding. Um, we sent out a request for people to share their experiences in the last month of how much harder, burdensome, uh, more burdensome uh, and more expensive it's been to access the most basic of COVID care um, and whether we could share their story. And so we're going to go through a couple of those. Um, thankfully, you know, we got a ton. We can't possibly read all of them. But I will say uh, it's very clear immediately that the reality as you might expect is very different from 
the portrayal that the Biden administration has pushed forward, that we're in this very uncomfortable moment where just one month out from the public health emergency, where remember, uh, at least according to the Biden administration, you know, the federal stockpile of vaccines, for instance, and Paxlovid hasn't even run out yet or shouldn't have. Right. There are already these like additional burdens to accessing these things. Um, and when I say additional, because this wasn't fucking I mean, because this like was not perfect in the beginning either or before, you know, before the end of the public health emergency, there was obviously a lot of, um, you know, quote unquote, access issues, as we've talked about plenty, but it's clearly gotten um, worse just in the last month. And so. Um, yeah, yeah there to, is there is friction, it turns out in the real in the real yeah, world. Absolutely. So let's start with I've kind of broken these down by obviously many of these stories kind of touch on multiple aspects of the healthcare system because that's the network or patchwork rather, I guess that we all live in. But I've kind of broken these down by different aspects of the quote unquote tools. So there's vaccines and testing and you know, Paxlovid, stuff like that. Um, so let's uh, let's start with touching directly on the vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, this submission is from Mark. Mark writes, quote, I have had immense difficulties with getting newer COVID boosters in the wake of the suspension of the national emergency, but I did have that difficulty even beforehand. I'm physically disabled and I can't drive, so I cannot get easily to more than one place where a booster could be offered. As such, I have been stuck trying to go down to my corner pharmacy several times. The first time, their fridge was broken, so they did not have any vaccines. The second time, their fridge was working, but they did not have the booster. I couldn't go to a different pharmacy further than that because I can only get so far on my own. I can only imagine how difficult it must be for those people who do not even have the option of a pharmacy that might or might not have a booster or testing available. I would count myself relatively fortunate, except I still have not been able to get the most recent booster, so I'm still living dreadfully in fear. As someone who knows the risk, something must be done. This makes me so frustrated, especially when you contrast this with the way that people talk about the low Mm -hmm. booster rate in the United States, where they're like... Oh, it's simply that people just don't know about the booster. This is a people's failure. health literacy is so bad. Yeah, like this is a failure of public health messaging, and we just need to spend like another couple million dollars on PSAs, and it's all all good, man. You know, like fuck off. Like yeah. the only thing a PSA does is convince a fucking liberal that the problem is solved. Yeah, it does not help <laughs> someone get a fucking booster. You fucking assholes well the other the other thing is i mean this this to me sounds so much like the whole reason that we have this entire time since the vaccines have been available rejected the idea that it is simply you know quote-unquote vaccine hesitancy (laughs) that is um keeping booster rates low it's like there's it's no wonder why in certain communities, especially in poorer communities and across like a lot of different metrics you'll find lower vaccination rates in places that are fucking divested from mm-hmm. right it's not this isn't this isn't fucking rocket science this is how the u.s healthcare system works mm-hmm. right this is yeah. how this entire system of provisioning works and, and you know mark <laughs> i'm so sorry for your experience first of all um but i'm sure you'll agree with me that this is actually a really good example also of just this state of inaccessibility physical inaccessibility yes. yeah, of American absolutely. healthcare, which is not something that people even often realize. Like we think that the ADA exists and it means that because the ADA exists that people can get into healthcare facilities or, you know, get to them, right? And that's absolutely not the case. And in fact, actually 
many medical offices are not only not ADA compliant, they're not even subject to the ADA because there are too few employees. Like there are so many ways that we pretend that healthcare is accessible and ignoring the fact that folks who are physically disabled often cannot either get into the building, they have to be carried up a step. Like it's fucking insulting. You should be able to get into any pharmacy, but that's really going to depend on like, does your city have curb cuts? Are there even sidewalks? Like, you know, how far of a, of a, um, like trip is that from your home? Do you have a manual wheelchair? Can you even like get yourself that far? It's really tiring. For some people, do you need a PCA to help you? You know what I mean? Do you have PCA hours and is it a good use of your PCA hours to use to like for a trip to the pharmacy or do you need that for like your weekly trip to get food and in the context you know? of climate I mean, change too the further you are away from the pharmacy or any type of medical care like you're a wheelchair user and you're trying to get there you're also out in the elements the whole fucking time which is like dangerous especially for folks who are heat intolerant it's a fucking nightmare well and this is like this is the same this really gives the lie to the same bullshit that's always like trotted out about, for example, abortion access, which is like, well, if it's if it's accessible somewhere, then it's accessible. And it's like, well, that's absolutely not true. You know, like, yeah, if it exists in theory, it must exist in practice. Yeah. If it exists anywhere, like in your city, then it's accessible to you. And it's like, well, it's that's bullshit. I want to get into the next one because I feel like it reinforces um, some of the problems with the the last one that we read. So so this one is from Claire. Um, so Claire writes, quote, the CVS I made my vaccine appointment at hasn't done COVID vaccines for a year. Fucking. They apologized when I came in for my appointment today. They suggested another CVS to see if they would do walk-in and said not to trust the online system. I went to the second. They don't keep COVID vaccines in stock. They suggested I call any store before going. So I called a third. The person on the phone raised her voice to me saying no one is eligible for a second booster, which is wrong. Obviously. What the fuck? And why was I trying to get one? What, what a fucking then, then the pharmacist from the first place called me to apologize that I'd showed up and not been helped saying his vaccine fridge went out last year and they can't Uh, get the online thing to stop scheduling them. He said, if I wait until fall, there should be some available somewhere. somewhere. We have the tools. Thank you for the story, Claire. And I'm so sorry. Holy shit. Now, just um, to be pedantic for a second, fuck that CVS employee who yelled at you on the phone, Claire. She is so fucking wrong. To quote the CDC.gov page on who qualifies as uh, being eligible for a second booster, it's people who are moderately or severely immunocompromised. And who is defined as moderately or severely immunocompromised is listed by the CDC as something that you can self-attest to. You can self-quote, you can self-attest to your moderate or severe immunocompromised status, which means you do not right. need any documentation of your you don't status. Need a doctor's note or whatever, which I know that I've seen a lot mm-hmm. of people say like CVS has said, or not just CVS, obviously, but like in general, trying to get a vaccine, they have been told you need a doctor's note to make sure that you're eligible for a second booster. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. come it's on. It's just like, also, I love that no one is eligible for a second booster. It's like, okay, that's, I mean, not to, again, pun perhaps intended, like, mask off moment it's like the second booster is just 
like a pay like a payout, you know, just a payday for <laughs> CVS. Like they get the shipment, but no one's actually eligible for these shots. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's fucking bullshit. So it's like you know, clearly, again, our booster, our lagging uh, booster rate has nothing to do with vaccine hesitancy and everything to do with structural fucking abandonment. Why don't neglect. Hmm, if- if only people trusted like the, if only people had more trust in the healthcare system, they might be less hesitant about receiving a novel vaccine. <laughs> like, if only people had like sixty hours to call every single CVS in their if someone metro had area. three months to wait until fall, there might be some available somewhere. If only CVS would simply allow their locations to turn off COVID appointments when their refrigerator <laughs> oh has been God. broken for a year. I mean, come on. I I would simply restructure my entire life around receiving a basic public health tool. Okay. <laughs> but I, think I would this... simply, you know, just, uh, oh, God, make but, my own vaccine. In that but, yeah. <laughs> but so um, this, I, I'm glad you brought up be this thing about the uh, qualification criteria for the second uh, bivalent booster, because this is also the subject of another one that we got. So I just want to read this. As well, I feel like, again, this gives kind of further support for what we're saying. This is clearly, I I mean, um, we got a bunch of, I'll just be, we got a bunch of submissions about this. This is clearly a a rampant problem. Um, So uh, this one is from JD writing, quote, I'm scheduled for a minor procedure in a week that requires an overnight hospital stay. I've been concerned since it was scheduled about catching COVID in the hospital ever since they informed me when I asked about mitigations that mask mandates have been lifted. It occurred to me only two weeks before the date that I could get a second bivalent booster, so I tried to do that. The pharmacy refused me because I don't fit the CDC criteria, but said I should reach out to my doctor because that is the way to get an exception. Again, Ah! as we say, this is, you know... A lie. (laughs) It's Well, Well, it's it's not not even a lie. It's like the pharmacy staff, first of all... Making shit up. Well, making shit up, but also because like, why would first it's like two things. One, first of all, they shouldn't be in a position where they where they are, you know, the arbiters of like who wants one or it's a vaccine shot. Mm -hmm. Like people, if someone's showing up to get a vaccine shot, let them get the fucking vaccine shot. (laughs) Um, Second, they shouldn't have to keep up with these regulatory changes. Mm -hmm. Um, And and third. This is the obvious consequence of telling everyone the pandemic's fucking over. Yeah. Like, everyone's like, no one is eligible for a second boost. And well, and from the from the previous one uh, from from Claire's, they said not only no one is eligible for a second booster, but why would you want one? Yeah, I yeah. know. Like, oh my come God. on. Anyway, um, back to JD. Yeah, back to JD because this um, the the saga continues, and if from hearing our conversation so far, actually, you won't be surprised by exactly where it goes. So um, anyway, c- continuing JD's JD writes uh, again, the pharmacy refused me because they said I don't fit the CDC criteria, but said I should reach out to my doctor because that is the way to get an exception. <laughs> I attempted to do this by phone and by e-visit through their website. The doctor's nursing staff insisted that because I don't fit CDC criteria, I don't need the vaccine. One of them scolded me for trying to not catch COVID, saying there was nothing I could do to avoid it. And, oh quote, I had it and it was mild. Oh, my God. And they oh then refused God. to pass my messages to the doctor. There were no appointments available until after the surgery. So I literally could not access my PCP to discuss this with him because his staff refused it. 
Wow. Um, what the fuck? Yeah. It's. I mean, it rhymes with so many healthcare experiences that we've had before. Mm-hmm. This is the part. This is the thing. It's just like this is the inevitable and buried, like completely out of sight consequence of passing off COVID. Of uh, first of all, again declaring the pandemic fucking over, but also of just passing off care to the regular U.S. healthcare system. This whole system, it's not just. It's like atomized at every level, and as a result. You know, in situations like this, people literally deterring people from seeking a fucking second booster. Like, come on. This is not again. You can't cry crocodile tears, policy people, about why booster uptake isn't so isn't high enough when you look at the actual reality of what people encounter when they try to fucking get it. Yeah, it's fucking bullshit. And, you know, the the thing that's so frustrating, right, is that, you know, when we talk about barriers to healthcare, right? Like popularly. We don't talk about the individual jackasses who for no <laughs> fucking reason just take it upon themselves to like gatekeep girl boss and gaslight you <laughs> away from just passing along a fucking my chart message to your mm-hmm. doctor. I mean, this is the thing that pisses me off about what became of like the electronic medical records system that was proposed during the ACA, the whole idea behind like changing the way we communicated with doctors and patients was to be able to make it safer and portable and to be able to like transfer that if someone was in an emergency in another situation was talked about as this like techno utopian way of fixing diagnostic errors and medical mistakes and what it's been used as is the best gatekeeping system Mm -hmm. and the most annoying fucking shit in the whole world and you have all of these individual moments where yeah like these bad actors here are making terrible decisions this is like malicious bullshit but also they've been structurally enabled to do this Mm -hmm. and this is like a huge problem just generally in our healthcare system and jd i am so fucking sorry you're going through this my gosh damn so um i want to move on to some stories that we got submitted about um seeking testing so Mm -hmm. this one is from nate nate writes quote I'm sick right now with COVID symptoms and testing negative on rapid tests, but want a PCR. I have a high risk condition and it's important for me to get accurate testing to pursue treatment ASAP if I have COVID. Also, this is me speaking. I would add you should be able to get a fucking PCR if if you want to get a PCR. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Nate continues, quote, I called my private insurance company yesterday and waited on hold for 20 minutes to confirm that they would cover a test. I booked it online with Walgreens while still on the phone with my insurance representative, and I told them that the Walgreens website was saying I would be charged. The insurance representative assured me that they cover it specifically at Walgreens, and that when I showed up for the test, it would be free. So I booked the test for today. I showed up at 12.15 for my scheduled test. It's an understaffed Walgreens in Chicago that always has wait times, and just like you mentioned at the end of the emergency episode, is burdened with testing and vaccines. I waited 20 minutes in the drive through line and then was told that the pharmacist was on break and I had to come back later. I went back at 2 p.m. and waited in line for another half hour. I got up to the window and explained I was there for a COVID test and specifically asked them to make sure the insurance covered it. They said that they needed to print the paperwork so I should circle around the back of the line. <laughs> oh my god. I waited another half hour in line and finally got to the window. 
They said that I needed to pay out of pocket for the full value of the test. Oh my God. I explained my insurance representative explicitly told me I shouldn't be charged at Walgreens uh, for the test and asked them for many different solutions. But in the end, they said that they were entering the code for the test and it was being denied because my insurance doesn't cover diagnostic care. They said I should pay for it out of pocket and hope to get reimbursed, but my insurance rep specifically said I should get it covered at the point of testing, not via reimbursement. So now I'm at home again, still actively sick, after waiting for an hour and a half at Walgreens and without getting a PCR test. Of course, note that I'm able to have high quality private insurance and the time and ability to do this all, and I still came home today without a test. See, Nate, this is the exact example of like the bullshit of the test to treat program as it was rolled out, (laughs) right? The idea that like the answer for people like me and Nate was just that we had to like get in touch with our PCP and get that Paxlovid right away. Like if it's COVID, get Paxlovid and you're fine. You're good to go. Get that fucking PCR. But like most doctors are not going to write you a prescription for Paxlovid unless you have a PCR result confirming your test, as we've seen with like a lot of the other submissions that we've already just talked to, like it's a crapshoot that you're even going to be able to like get the doctor to respond at all or get through to the doctor. And this is just one of those examples of like when we say that these things exist, oftentimes it kind of is actually politically demotivating because it does actually convince people that the problem is solved. And all of these experiences like Nate's go completely unnoticed, unrecorded, invisible. You know, we just assume that all the vulnerable people are just getting their Paxlovid and they're totally fine, so it's no big deal yeah. that COVID's just spreading everywhere right now. Yeah, and it's well, really <laughs> just that no one's, no one's, like, thinking about it. The whole point of test to treat was not to, like, ensure that people get timely access to treatments for COVID. The point of test to treat... I feel like there has been a real kind of like ideological and rhetorical preference for testing over like transmission control throughout the pandemic and like test to treat, I feel like was kind of, yeah, just like a rhetorical innovation in very much like in that vein of like, well, no, no, no. Like if we if we just have timely testing and can hook people up to treatment really fast, then it doesn't matter how much COVID is actually spreading around there. You know what I mean? So like, let's just focus on like, let's just focus on testing. But of course, I mean, they're not really focused on testing. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So the next one I think is a really good um, example also of testing uh, in part because it reflects someone's story of basically trying to get testing to make sure that they're like not going into a hospital setting sick or into another healthcare setting sick. So um, this one comes from Catherine. Catherine writes, quote, I had my second, to my knowledge, COVID infection recently, less than a week after the PHG ended. I mask everywhere, so I guess I got it from the store. I was supposed to see my PCP, private, uh, primary care provider, a day after I tested positive a provider I had searched for specifically to address post-COVID conditions, among other health issues. I had waited for this appointment for six months. I was not wanting to go in COVID positive if I could help it. I was denied telehealth, and my next appo- and my new appointment is in October. Oh my, god. oh my god! I never got a PCR test, though I tested positive on multiple rapid tests. Plus, I doubt my insurance covers them. They didn't even reimburse rapid tests during the public health emergency. This is so frustrating. And this is one of those things that that I've been talking about a lot. And every time I speak to like a journalist, for example, and they ask me like, how are 
immunocompromised people being left behind by COVID? How are medically vulnerable people? Usually they say, how do medically vulnerable people feel like they're being mm. left behind by COVID, mm -hmm. oh actually? My God. Um, of course, they never actually ask, like, how, but how do you feel? And I go, you know, it's not just that. It's the fact that people who are chronically ill, who are medically vulnerable, our care is planned months, if not years in advance and adheres to a tight schedule. And if we get COVID, we miss appointments and it throws everything off. Well, and this is a fucking new patient appointment mm -hmm. because of because what might be long COVID, COVID symptoms. Oh, right, exactly. Yeah. And so this is the thing that's so frustrating, especially when you couple it, for example, with the Medicaid unwinding. Let's say you have Medicaid right now and you have an appointment right now yeah. that's Will a new patient appointment. October? Mm -hmm. If you get kicked off of Medicaid this month, is that doctor even going to be on whatever insurance you may end up getting but again by October, right? Like it's it's not even a guarantee that you're going to be able to get back on Medicaid. Most people fall through the cracks and we lose track of them. They're lost to follow up. You know, this is, it's not just that people slip through the cracks in the United States. We make gaping holes. <laughs> we pick people and up by people. their ankles and we shove them in the holes as hard and fast as we can over and over and over again. And we talk about it like gently slipping through a crack, just falling out of everyone's fingers. It's fucking deliberate. Exactly like what's happening to Catherine right here, where this is fucking abandonment. And we're going to call this, you know, that, you know, Catherine's going to be called like non-compliant. If Catherine's symptoms later are worse because Catherine's care was delayed because of these structural things, Catherine will be blamed for having not sought medical attention sooner. That's like mm -hmm. how a lot of these frameworks end up playing out in interpersonally towards patients. Well, and this but also on a, on like a federal messaging level, I mean, literally the, um, you know, I know Fauci is not in government anymore, but like, for instance, the David Wallace Wells Fauci interview, he mm -hmm. literally said to Wallace Wells, uh, Fauci said like, show me someone who has, been vaccinated and gotten packs and gotten packs loaded on time and died. I can't find anyone. And it's like, okay, it's well, like, go the on yourself. time part is that what, what is that? Some supposed to be some moral failing mm -hmm. of them? Like, no, this mm -hmm. is not, this is a structural problem that you're just like wishing away onto an individual as though it's their problem. So glad you pointed that out already. Yeah. Um, I want to state uh, one last thing about Catherine's story, which I find fascinating, which is that they say that um, their insurance company didn't even cover rapid tests or reimburse rapid tests during like during the public health emergency. And that just I want to call that out um, and uh, highlight that specifically just because when we make jokes that are like, oh, yeah, you know, this insurance company or that pharmaceutical company is definitely following the rules for mm -hmm. sure. Absolutely. You know, um, that's the stuff that we're talking about is like, there's this, you know, people say, Oh yeah, it's like, they're sure. The insurance company is legally compelled to do this or that the rule is such that they should be doing this. It's like should does a lot of work mm -hmm. to excuse things that, um, to excuse a lot of cracks that, uh, appear or like holes that people fall through. Directly. Yeah, I am just at uh, one point on that. I mean, people oftentimes who are more naive about like the healthcare system in the US or less experienced with the welfare state here will often say like, oh, you know, death panel, you're so great. But like, you guys are so cynical. You're so pessimistic. You're always like, 
you know, you hear something and you're like, it's going to turn out bad. And I'm like, no, it's just that the, like, the project is like, we know how it works. And so we're here to communicate to you about the bad stuff. This isn't yeah. a cynical uh, evaluation of like what to expect from insurance companies. This is a statement of fact about what the words, you know, do when we talk about like, oh, you know, this is going to be insured through a partnership, um, a handshake deal with this insurance company. It means you can expect the kind of abandonment that yeah. Catherine just experienced. I mean, exactly. Like, yeah, two things to say about that kind of perspective. One is that like they're cynical and then there's just sort of, as you know, B's pointing out experience watching the structure work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, though, is like, this is something I've been thinking about a lot since you had that like really beautiful conversation be with Maryam and Kelly um, about let this radicalize you is it's important to note, you know, we're not just like reading these stories because like, look how bad the world is. We're reading the stories because as we pointed out from the beginning of this, um, when you look at media organizations, for example, like we're not a media organization, obviously <laughs> we're not like journalists or whatever. We're just people who have opinions, but the, but like if, Media organizations, for example, are painting this overly rosy picture of reality and saying that these things basically aren't happening. Mm-hmm. How is that ever supposed to change? Mm-hmm. Right? Like right, how, right? How are these things ever supposed to be addressed if it's not even brought attention to? And not that us bringing attention to it is going to do it, right? But, you know, we're just, yeah, we're here chipping away at the facade, I suppose, uh, as best we can and as slow as that is. Um, yeah. In any case, the reason I brought up the, like, insurance subsidized rapid tests thing too is because we got a really interesting response about that specifically too so i want to read this one next um this one is from dave thank you dave um dave writes quote on may 8th i took off work early to get the last batch of insurance subsidized covid tests from rite aid they were out and the pharmacist didn't know when they'd be getting more and they couldn't quote unquote take my order or whatever until they had them in stock which should be within a week, maybe. On May 9th, I went to a different Rite Aid since these free tests weren't available at the Walgreens near my house, and they were also out. Apparently, there was a supply chain issue. Since the pharmacist counter closes at 5, I felt like I had burned through my leave work early to go to the drugstore allotment and was also out of Rite Aids within 20 minutes of my home. So that was pretty much that. Again, a classic portrayal of what we have the tools actually materially looks like here in Dave's experience, right? Like you can say, oh, remember to get four more rapid tests before the free rapid tests are no longer available. But, you know, what are we assuming that everybody has unlimited time to schlep to every fucking like pharmacy and Mm -hmm. and ask them, do you have them available? Do you have them available? I mean, these are the things like when you're worried about like whether you're going to get disciplined at work or fired for taking too much time off because like what the pharmacy can't give you a fucking test. Right. It's it's just such a fucking bullshit. I mean, one of the things that's also so frustrating is like, this is the way that like time is extracted from people (laughs) in the most disgusting way. We pretend that your health is like in your hands and totally up to you. And it's everybody's own destiny to control. And if you just like work hard enough, then you can be healthy. And no one talks about the fucking time extraction and how unevenly that's applied and how, you know, for some people, you absolutely, there is no way you could ever access any of these fucking tools that Ashish Jha has been, you know, 
parroting for months are the reason that we can abandon all structural and layered protections, the reason we cannot invest in changing, you know, cleaning the air in schools, the reason why masks can be justified. You know, he's just been selling us like a fucking broken car and saying it works fine for like over a year now. And and you know what? Like experiences like the one that Dave has had are very common. I hear from people all the time, like, you know, it's so fucking frustrating the way they talk to to you so condescending from the administration. They'll say like, you know, people are vaccine hesitant. They need to make sure to get boosted. But, you know, when do I have the time to fucking take off of work to chase down a booster? It may not even be there. Right. Exactly. Especially if maybe the like pharmacy worker is going to tell you like you're not eligible for it right or perhaps the pharmacy has a broken fridge and cvs hasn't let them update the fucking website in the last year you know we have the tools my ass um finally i think maybe a a last one uh again we had to make a selection we really appreciate all of the stories and everything uh that you've shared though and we've tried to kind of like make sure that people's submissions were highlighted along a theme um, so again, thank you all for um, submitting these. And I think we're going to leave it open too. Yeah. So just, yeah, please continue to share all of your um, pandemic privatization stories with us as you begin to encounter them or continue to. Um, and we'll leave this in the description and stuff uh, also so that you can, so that there's a link to um, where you can submit these if you've had a similar experience and um, tell us also if you appreciated this, because what we can always return um, to this too, to continue to take, sort of mm-hmm. the temperature of what is uh, happening. But um, so this last one comes from Grace. Grace writes, I can't see a dentist for preventative health care. The whole practice refuses, the whole dental practice refuses to mask. And when I submitted an accommodation request, they refused saying they quote, can't possibly meet those requirements, meaning masking. I offered to what? supply masks for them. And they told me, that I can mask at the dentist. (laughs) I asked them what they thought I was there for, and they had no answer. So, (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry to laugh. I'm not laughing at the experience. I'm laughing at, like, how fucking absurd. I'm laughing at the Yeah, the dental staff, that's what I'm laughing. It's like, what? I don't know what I would have done. I If if you were on the phone with them, did you just, like, absolutely lose your shit when that happened? (laughs) This is, is like, the, the peak... One way masking in healthcare settings <laughs> story. Uh, obviously, there you know there are a lot of obviously there are, you know many many people having you know similar uh, experiences. But like for something like this, here's a person who's just asking, can the dentist wear a mask? Wear a mask, which which they is should, a like, pretty they common thing that anyway. dentists yeah. like do anyway. Like, but and then and you know they're told can't possibly. Couldn't possibly. You can wear a mask if you want. Yeah. Wear a mask. What? While I'm while my mouth is wide open getting dental work. This is going to be like Joseph Joseph Allen's next column. One way masking at the dentist. Yeah. (laughs) I can do it. And so can you. How to do a teeth cleaning through the side of a of a. Matt. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, so thank you, Grace. I'm sorry. We go through your ears to clean your molars, and they're like, oh my god, like. Laparoscopic dental surgery. Just, yeah. Can yeah. I can I like have a little miniature rant about the Americans with Disabilities Act here? Because like part of the problem is that you know this this whole framing that the dentist feels like oh we can just say that that's a burdensome request, right? Like 
we just can't possibly mask. That's too hard. Like, the popular understanding of the ADA is that, like, you can make the accommodation if it's requested, um, if it's reasonable, and if it's unreasonable, then you don't have to accommodate it because of these fucking frameworks that we put in about when something's a burden or not. Like, yeah, it applies in court in one way, but your fucking dentist is going to use it like this and be an asshole, and you yeah. have no recourse. Ugh, fucking man. Bullshit. So... Anyway, thank you everyone who submitted your stories. Um, hopefully we'll get a chance to read more as things continue. I suspect also, because we didn't make an announcement about this on the show uh, itself before, so I suspect once you've heard this, if you've had similar experiences or even more egregious um, experiences or just like have or had less, like a, even, a, you know. or less, whatever, or have had like, a, if you've had similar experiences and you want to share them, we'll keep collecting them and we'll see to what degree we can use them to shine light on what's sort of actually happening as opposed to the kind of uh nothing to see here no story Mm -hmm. here um Mm -hmm. situation that it seems to be treated frankly pervasively but so yeah again thank you again thank you uh, everyone everyone who who took the time to send us yeah and Um, i guess maybe as like a final thing mm -hmm. before we wrap um i also wanted to just take a moment and thank everyone for the overwhelming outpouring of support after we spoke about what's been going on with the denial of my IVIG by my Medicare Part D plan. Um, Because of the help from everyone sharing the episode, getting the word out, you know, we've been able to, you know, get some serious assistance with fighting this. And, um, you know, we're moving into like a very difficult and sort of fraught next stage. But yeah, because the the last time that we spoke about it, basically when we when we talked about it, for the people who don't like follow B on Twitter, for example, when we last talked about it on the show, B mentioned she was going to go before an administrative law judge that afternoon. B did that. It um, didn't go well. <laughs> well, it went well. It went okay. You did. A, I mean, you did an amazing. An it amazing was an job. unfavorable decision. <laughs> but B lost. Yeah. Um, and so. Fuckers. We are moving to the next stage um, of appeal on it, but uh, we did want to just kind of give, uh, you know, a little update saying, you know, to be clear, the situation is far from resolved, Resolved. (laughs) but in part, thanks to some of the amazing support that uh, we've gotten and some of the people that we've been put in touch with, uh, we have at least a strategy for the next round of appeal. So um, just to make sure that, you know, because we're, we're still getting people who are just listening to the episode recently and being like, oh, my God, how can I help, et cetera, et cetera. So just wanted to give a quick update so you're not like racking your brain still if you're if this was if this was you. So you're mm-hmm. not still racking your brain. Like, how could I possibly um, help? We will definitely let people know if there's uh, if there's like further assistance that we need publicly or anything. Yeah. And, um, and for when we know more as things progress, you know, we'll update y'all because as much as this is also fucking horrible, it is a really fascinating case study of how the state actually works. Yeah. I also just want to say at the same time, it's deeply infuriating to me that we never would have gotten in touch with any form of help had it not been for the show. Yeah. So I just want to say... Uh, yeah, like, again, I would simply, what, have an audience to get help? What the fuck? Like, you, know what the, I mean? but, you know, most, like, uh, narrowly focused podcast possible towards your exact needs for help. Like, And, you know, as Phil said on the episode about the Part D stuff, um, even if B does win the next appeal round, 
the trap door will still be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just wanted to reiterate that we're committed to closing that trap door, whether yes. that's through closing this specific regulatory, you know, loophole problem that the insurer is um, exploiting that we talked about on the episode, or uh, ideally whether that is through being able to break this entire system apart and eventually see a world where we have all care for all people, as we've said. So absolutely. In any case, again, thank you for all of the support. Deep, deep gratitude. I have no words. And I think that's kind of the perfect place to leave it for today. Listeners, thank you so much. We couldn't do any of this without you, especially our patrons. To support the show, become a patron. You'll get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes and the entire back catalog of bonus episodes at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, Share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.